Well, hey, uh, I'm Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the pastor here, as a matter of fact, at Regeneration, and uh, I'm super glad you're here. Uh, Tonight, we're on our second week in a 10-week series on the book of Ephesians. Um, Ephesians is a really just fascinating letter in the New Testament written by Paul. Uh, Paul is, uh, well, we'll talk about Paul in a minute. Ephesians is all about the church. And so whether you've been part of the church for 50 years or 50 minutes, what you need to know is that this letter is just vital to understanding who Jesus wants his church to be. And so we're going to spend time in just 10 verses of chapter 2 tonight. We spent, uh, we did all of chapter 1, verses 1 through 23 last week in 25 minutes. So if I can do 23 verses in 25 minutes, let's see if I can do 10 verses in 25 minutes. And the reason I say that is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 are really just complex verses. The first three chapters of Ephesians are heavily doctrine. They're concepts, they're ideas that are important, and you need them for the fa- to comprehend the faith. But um, sometimes it's easy to keep something complex complex. And so it's my job, and it's sometimes hard, to make something complex not simple or easy, but plain. And so that's what we're going to try to do. But when you get into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10... Paul is writing in these sweeping words, and he's even using a lot of run-on sentences. It kind of gets crazy. And so um, one author I like, and I read this quote, he said it's sometimes writing is like um, building a chicken coop in a thunderstorm. You're kind of just grabbing, or maybe even a tornado, he said. It's like you're just kind of grabbing anything you can and nailing it down. And so a lot of the sermon is that. It was me kind of in the windstorm of verses 1 through 10 and kind of just grabbing whatever I could and nailing it down. But a lot of what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is, is what I would describe as the Apostles Paul biography theologized. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul. Paul was not always Paul. In fact, at one time his name was Saul. Saul was a Jewish rabbi of the highest order. He was smart. He was knowledgeable. He had a lot of political and social clout in his circles. And when uh, Jesus died and rose again and the church was born at Pentecost and it began to grow in Jerusalem and Judea and all that Mediterranean area of the world, the Jewish people did not like this. It was viewed to them as a heresy. And so Paul became the front runner as what we would call a persecutor of the church. He made it his job to destroy the church. The text in Acts says that every breath he uttered was a threat and that he would go from house to house and city to city and drag people out of their homes, men and women, I think it's interesting that the text makes a point of that. Men and women, and he dragged them from their homes and threw them into prison for being followers of the way. Saul was his name. And Saul, one day, is on the road to a city called Damascus, where he is going to kick butt and take names and throw people into jail. And uh, as he's doing that, a bright light shines, knocks him down, and he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he has an encounter with the living, risen Jesus on this road that blinds him. Uh, And he kind of is helped into Damascus where he meets one of the early Christians. And it's really interesting. As they converse, the text says something like scales fell from his eyes. And in that moment, Saul changed his name to Paul. And after a period of months of mentoring and growth and discipleship and training, Paul becomes the greatest missionary the church has ever known. The book of Acts kind of like tells the story of these journeys of him going from just Jerusalem into the surrounding area and then jumping on boats and ending up in cities like 
Ephesus and Rome and Galatia and these areas that we now know as, say, Turkey and Greece and Rome. Paul traveled all of these on boat and on foot, and he would go from town to town, and he spread the gospel. Paul is a great missionary, but he's also a great theologian. He wrote most of the New Testament. And so when we come to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul is telling his story. Paul is, is telling us, this was my life. And he kind of does this before, after, so what? This is how I once was before I knew Jesus. This is now who I am because I know Jesus, and this is what I do about it, is what he's going to do. So I want to start in verses 1 through 4, and uh, some of these verses will be on the screen, but here's what the text says. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, I looked up in the Greek, what all of us means, it means all of us, just in case you were wondering. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Really happy, clappy stuff here, right? You were dead in your trespasses and because of your many sins. A lot of us like to think of sin as something conceptual, uh, as something, we live in a culture that has kind of tried to brush this word under the rug, and by culture, I don't mean like the non-Christian world, I mean the church. We kind of skirt around the world, word sin, but Paul, the New Testament, the Old Testament, the scriptures, throws this word around really freely and even dissects it so that we can see it. Uh, and Paul says, the t- Ephesians says, that the core of sin is death, that you were dead. That's what you were in the coffin donezo. And what I love about this text is that Paul kind of shows us how how dead people live, that there were three governing authorities for the dead. And so, uh, Dylan, if you look at the next one, there's like a triangle on it. Paul kind of hits three major ideas, that the dead person does sin because that's what dead people do it's just it's just in their nature but as a part of that they are under the governing authority for lack of a better word of three forces the world the flesh and the devil paul talks about the world early on when he says you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world the new international version says you lit that uh, you follow the ways of the world or the message says you let the world which doesn't know the first thing about living tell you how to live. We all have a teacher. We all have an instructor. And for those who are, have yet to strap, step across the line of faith, for those who have yet to ask Jesus into their heart, uh, the, way, the teacher primarily is the world. It is following the culture, the norms, just the way everybody does it is how it works. He says, you used to follow this way. You were subject to people's opinions and that sway kind of with the wind, and actually Paul will kind of address that in a unique way in chapter 4. There's the world, which is a general attitude or spirit, but we're also under the authority of the devil, who is the overseer of a realm of authority. He says in verse 2, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of powers in the unseen world. This, Ephesians, is Paul's most comprehensive treatment of spiritual warfare, of 
which is like the Christian words for like demonic activity. And chapter 6 zeroes in on that. And in fact, the last sermon of this series, which will be kind of toward October, um, is called We Are at War. That the living church is at war with forces, not just cultural, but that have a personal being, an agenda, and is trying to carry it out in the world. There is a devil, his name is Satan, and he is the active ruler on some level in the world, given authority by God in a limited way now. And the text says that we obeyed him. And so there's the world and the devil, which kind of exist as like atmospheric, like these are the external realities, but there's an internal one too. Paul talks about in verse 3, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Some of your translations might say flesh. Uh, What Paul is trying to say is that there is a part of us that at our core is inclination and desire. And I think a a semi-step of the way there is, now that I've been seeing a personal trainer for a while or a strength and conditioning coach, uh, now I I occasionally catch myself eating things and not sure why I'm eating them, which is unfortunate. Uh, But, uh, you know, like I'll be, I really enjoy a bowl of Fruit Loops or other cereal before bed, and I was eating my Fruit Loops this week, and as I was about halfway through bowl number one, because really what I do is I eat a bowl, and then when there's milk just left, I fill it again. Um, I began to wonder, like, why am I eating this? And there's these moments where we just become aware of our inclinations and desires kind of just carrying us along with them, as opposed to us being in control of them. And that's what's so interesting about these verses when Paul talks about sin, is let's be clear about something, that when we sin, when we do something that offends God, we make a choice to do that. But yet at the same time, all of the verbs Paul uses in this are passive. So he says you obeyed the devil, that you followed these things, that you were kind of carried along by them. It's super interesting that on the one hand, we, before Christ, can really, as a matter of fact, really only choose sinfulness. This is a John Calvin thing that we won't go into. But this is why Paul says even all my righteousness was like filthy rags, but here's the deal. We still are kind of carried along. We're imprisoned, and let's, be, let's talk about this. Sin is not something that we need to fix in, with a psychologist or with a pill or with a pattern of behavior modification. Sin is not something that we can address by sheltering ourselves from it or avoiding it. Sin is something we need to be delivered from because it was in the core of our very nature. And I know maybe that's a little offensive because I don't, think, you, you, I don't think of myself as a sinner and that's not how I function in the world and yet the word of God says that before you step across the line of faith, before you enter into the kingdom of, kingdom of Jesus, you're part of another kingdom um, as like this dead zombie thing. The reality is we don't need to work hard to cast the show The Walking Dead because before Christ, like that's all of us is what the, st- the text is trying to tell us and and, and this is what's incredible is when, when we get to these verses, verse 4. Could you just go to the next one, Dylan? It just says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. The most important words in the English language or in any language are those two words, but God. Because when that, those two words kind of intersect your story, anything is possible. Anything can happen. It's new. But here's the thing. Catch this. That sin is not something we, again, can fix with a pill or a psychologist or behavior modification. 
sin is not a matter of training ourselves to act differently. It's a matter of resurrection. It's not a matter of living just and being nicer and choosing to work harder, although that's the work of sanctification, which we get into later in the letter. For now, what we're talking about is sin is a matter of raising from the dead. And so Paul, in these verses, if you go to the next one there, Dylan, he says this, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us and all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. Here's what's crazy. And I know this is conceptual, and we kind of hit this last week. When, when you step across the line of faith, when you begin to follow Jesus, we're not just talking about being near Jesus or having a close friendship with him. We are talking about being united to him in a way that is really truthfully hard to explain. But the, but the scripture kind of wants us to see our relationship with Jesus not as like a close friend, but as a baby in utero who's living and moving and being depends on this union with Christ. And here's what happens. When you are united with Christ, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, um, you died with Jesus on the cross. You were there in Christ with him. You were in the grave for three days with Christ dead. You were raised to new life with Christ when he, on the third day. You went to heaven with Christ um, and, and the text says, set your mind on things, in, in Colossians, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What Paul wants us to see in this text is we're sitting right there with him because even though like here I am on earth and doing my like going to work, hanging out, whatever thing, even in all of that, I am united to Jesus. And, I, and, and, and that is what salvation is. It's not just getting a new buddy that we occasionally go talk about at church for an hour. It is a whole new way of being, similar to how... Um, a husband and wife beforehand are somehow distinct people, but they merge in a unique way and start finishing each other's sentences. And like my wife and I leave the house sometimes accidentally matching. And uh, seriously, like I have like a pinkish pair of shorts and the number of times I'm wearing black and pink and she's wearing black and pink is bizarre. And we don't even talk about it. It just happens. And, 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 and something happens in the moment where they're, we are distinct but inseparable. And that's what Paul is trying to get at, that, listen, the, the only way to solve the sin problem wasn't just to get us to act a little differently for a little while or to sing some songs or do something. We needed to be raised from the dead and seated in the heavenly realms. Go to the next one here, Dylan. What happens is G we have to be brought out of the realm of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We had to be put somewhere totally different. And so he seats us, I shouldn't climb on this, he seats us above all of it, right? He, he puts us above that in the heavenly places and creates in us a new nature. So that I am, I am a resurrected Kyle and I am experiencing that resurrection day by day. Like when we talk, Easter is not just one day a year. Like it, this is a cute churchy thing to say and I'll probably have a video for it in April. But it's like Easter is every day when you're a Christian. But it's true because resurrection is this ongoing thing because I've been put above the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and, and, and I've been raised from the dead. I have new life. And it's conceptual, and, and, it's, and it's weird, but the reality is that my identity as a member of the living church is that I am saved. You, know, you, have, like not, you have like maybe a Christian friend at work or something like that, like I'm born again. 
I got, or you'll hear Christians say, well, I got saved at a Billy Graham thing back in the 80s. Um, and, and that word saved just implies that if I was saved, I had to be saved from something. And I was, I was ransomed, I was pulled back, I was taken out of this realm of, really frankly, sin, and I was brought into this whole other place. And now, and now I'm experiencing in Christ what I can only describe as true freedom. Because here's the, like, here's the wrap, right? The, 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 we kind of want to end up kind of believing this narrative that like Christians, you know, they don't drink, they don't chew, and they don't go with girls who do, you know? And um, that's like one of my grandma's things. And, um, you know, and she grew up, like she grew up like back in the, in the day when like Christians didn't wear makeup and Christians didn't go to movies and Christians didn't play cards and Christians certainly didn't drink. And like my father-in-law who still says that dancing is a vertical expression of a horizontal desire, right? And um, it's true. And uh, I love my father-in-law. You got to meet him. He's the real deal. But, and so Christians kind of get associated with this thing. Well, we don't do this. We don't do this. And we don't do this. And we don't do this. And so it starts to become, well, if you're not a Christian, you're living the free life. Like my hair is down and I'm just partying all the time. But the reality is, is it freedom to do what you want to do, even if you're ruled by it? Or is it freedom to choose to do what you want because that's what it means? I mean, the person that is in the realm of sin, that is dead, it isn't really free. It's this person that's free. And yeah, freedom has boundaries, but that doesn't mean it's not freedom. But here's the challenge, right? Like, if you're, if you're walking with Jesus, you know that the reality of your life is like you still sin. Kyle is very prone, uh, he's learning in this season, to be very driven by shame, which I know sounds weird, but it's really at the core of my personality. We can talk about the Enneagram at another time. But shame is how, when I am not at my best, I make choices to live out of that place, to live anxiously and to want to people please and to say the right thing and do the right thing and be the right thing and be impressive and I'm motivated by that and that's not a bad thing. Success is not bad but when it comes from this place that I am trying to ameliorate my shame by doing this, I'm no longer living in freedom of that. This is now Kyle trying to climb back under the chair. Do you know what I mean? Now I'm like, Christ has seated me up here and I'm like, but I like it under here so much. I just want to and, and that's what sin is. It's climbing back underneath the line. It's climbing back in the coffin, really. And so Paul wants us to see that our identity is no longer this trapped, kind of following the inclinations. It's not being an object of God's anger, the text says. I mean, think about that for a second. What our identity is, is this loved, chosen, adopted child who lives in the freedom of knowing his father, her father just adores them. And here's the cool thing about being in Christ. Check this out. You are adored as Christ is adored. You are celebrated as Christ is celebrated. You are loved as Christ is loved. You are cherished as Christ is cherished. That's what he shares with us. And when the text talks about the glorious inheritance, that's what we're talking about. And so Paul ends this chapter 
with kind of two so what's. And, and I've actually been tempted to call them t- two signs, kind of turning them on their head, two signs of disordered spirituality. Two signs that you're doing it wrong. Um, I've been at the gym and have to do this like one leg kettlebell deadlift thing where like I, I don't, I can't do it ever right. Um, and so Zach's always coming alongside and like, no, stick your butt out further, stick your butt out further. So, you know what I mean? Like, and I, I can't stick my butt out further. And, um, and so it's disordered. And even though I'm kind of trying to do the right thing, sometimes you catch yourself in these disordered places. You're kind of flexing the wrong muscle. You're doing the wrong thing. And so Paul kind of hits on two of them here at the end. He says in verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. Here's what you need to know. If you are saved, if you are in Christ, you received a gift. And it wasn't because God said, oh, he's good looking, let's pick him. Or she's real smart, or she's very wise, or he's a pretty good guy, let's bring him, let's put him on our team. I mean, salvation is not, uh, salvation is not a, like a dodgeball team in high school where you're hoping not to get picked last, and the devil gets these ones, and Jesus gets these ones. What it is, is it is a gift. He says, it's a, you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. And I began to wrestle with this word, boast. Because I thought, well, what, what does it mean, boast? Because I don't necessarily know anybody that's like, well, I'm a Christian, and I am awesome. And then I realized that I do. I do know people like that. Because I, I have come to maybe begin to grasp that some of the most entitled people in America are, are Christians. Because we have sacrificed so much to be good people. Um, And you don't know the things I have not done in the name of Jesus. And you don't know how hard I work with really what are annoying people to accomplish God's mission. You, You don't know what I do, and so I deserve to be treated this way. And here's, let's notch it up a little bit. We get, we get on the national scale, and God forbid any politician any president, any congressman, any celebrity say anything uh, that it goes against us. Recently, Target, I don't know if you heard this, they, they, they no longer label toys like boys, girls, boys toys and girls toys. And so a prominent Christian, I won't say his name, said, this is ridiculous, this is not a Christian value, don't go to Target. I really like Target. Um, and so, A, I don't care who says it, I'm still going to go to Target, but B, I I am not owed for Target to mirror my ideals. I am not owed for someone in public who does not profess the name of Jesus to live like I do. Let's be clear about something. This is why boasting is dangerous because it makes us forget that the person who has stepped across the line of faith has come to a real ownership of how bad they suck. A person who has stepped across the line of faith, God has enlightened the eyes of their hearts so they can see, I am terrible. We just sang those words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a moderately nice person like me. That saved a, you know, I pay my taxes kind of person like me. No, saved a wretch. And here's the crazy thing. Before you step across the line of faith, it's like, how dare you call me a wretch? But after you do, it's like, yeah, that was me. I was a wretch. God scraped me from the bottom of the barrel and made me into something better. I can't tell you how true that is for me. The things that I have 
processed in this is just tremendous because it's true. Boasting is a spiritual dysfunction because it, it leaves home base. And home base is this. I needed Jesus. I was dead. Um, I wasn't just in need of a little help and a little pick-me-up and a pat on the butt and on we go. I needed resurrecting. And Jesus did it. It's a spiritual dysfunction to be angry because that's what boasting is. It comes from a heart of anger. It's, 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 it's dysfunctional to be angry, to be insistent. Love does not insist on its own way, First Corinthians 13 says. Here's the place that Christians are supposed to live out of tremendous humility. No expectations. Utter flexibility. I had a beautiful conversation with somebody this week, and, and they said, I've decided to be flexible. I've decided, it's, it's at, one of the, at, at the church I serve in the mornings, this person said, I've decided that even if you change something I really like, I'm not going to complain about it. And I could have just squeezed them to pieces in that moment. And that, that's it, is I'm going to choose to be flexible, Jesus. I'm going to let you do what you're going to do in my life. I'm going to be humble. I'm not going to insist that. I mean, that's what it is. A spiritual dysfunction is boasting. I actually had an awesome picture about it. I don't want to forget it. But I mean, sometimes boasting kind of looks like that which might have come out of an HMM catalog, but let's hope not. And so then he says this in verse 10. This is where I want to really hit. And then verse 10, listen to this. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That, I, I did look up this word. That word masterpiece in the Greek, it means poema is the word. It's a poem song, a piece of art, something beautiful. It kind of looks like this. Um, something that we, that we treasure and, and love. We are his masterpiece. Um, sometimes you read those words and, and, and you go, well, how dare God say these things about me? But somehow God, we sang this song once or twice here at Regeneration and the song was like, um, I'm a sinner. And if it's not one thing, it's another. But you are a savior and you take brokenness aside and make it beautiful. I mean, Christ makes us anew and takes us out of the realm of the dead and into new life and makes us anew and turns us into something beautiful. But sometimes our tendency is to forget that and so we start to kind of revert. We start to move, to move backwards. We kind of want to go back over here and try to become like zombie-ish. And that's not who you are. You're not your addiction. You're not your preferences. You're not your cancer. You're not your illness. You're not your family baggage. You're not, um, that's, you're not as famous as you think you are. You're not blank because you are his masterpiece. Created anew in Christ Jesus. And what does the text say? For good works. It's really interesting because Paul makes a contrast here and he's going to go to great lengths throughout all of his letters to say that we do not earn our salvation, that we don't do enough nice things and then, boop, get into heaven. Like, there's your card, welcome, you know. That's not how it works. And Paul even says that it's not by works you've been saved. It is a gift. But then he does interestingly go on to say, but please do good works. Um, this actually caused Martin Luther to take the book of James, which is in your New Testament, and kind of ignore it for a while because it says that faith without works is dead. He thought it was wrong. But here's the deal. Faith, faith with works. Works are not the means to salvation, but they are the outpouring. I don't work 
to be accepted. I work because I am accepted. I don't work to be loved. I work because I am loved, and I want other people to know it. You're created anew in Christ Jesus for works. I actually realized after I made the slide and kind of put it on, uh, in, our, in our system and stuff that really the picture that we don't need is Mona Lisa because you're not a masterpiece that God wants to stick behind some glass in like a climate-controlled environment to make sure nothing ever happens to you. You're, you're made for work. And so you're like a Model T Ford, the first one that rolled off the assembly line that Henry Ford did. I mean, that thing was beautiful, and it was a masterpiece of engineering and mathematics and science. And unfortunately, you had to crank it, but I, we all got over that because I don't have to crank my Chevy anymore. But here's the deal. It was a masterpiece, but it was made for work. And I also thought of a John Deere tractor. Because, you know, my, my wife's family lives in South Dakota, and so you'll be driving, and you'll see, and I mean, there are these, like, gleaming... John Deere tractors, and I'm talking like, and like gleaming John Deere combines, and I hate being outside, I'm not a good hard worker, it's, it's really good um, that I am not a farmer, uh, because we'd be poor, uh, uh, we would have a problem, but I even drive by and I think like, I want one of those, I just want to have one to look at it, this green with the yellow and the shiny, and, the, and it's meant to do work. And, that, and that's what we're talking about is when you're created in Christ Jesus, you're created to do good works. And the text says, this is really incredible. So we can do the things he planned for us long ago. I think the way I have this memorized is for we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that, which he planned beforehand that we may walk in them. There's something like I have in his head is, and, and here's the funny thing about good works is they're not even something that we did. It's not like I had this genius idea to care for somebody that needed me. It's God said, okay, on August 28th, I want Kyle to do this. It's a good work I prepared beforehand, and boom, it's done. And so we, as God's masterpieces, become the way through which Jesus blesses and cares for and takes care of the world because we are not this zombie critter anymore. What we are is these beautiful masterpieces that have been saved and plucked from something and are free to do good works. Paul says in Galatians, uh, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So do not therefore submit yourself to a yoke of slavery. He says that you have been set free for, to love one another, not that you may gratify the flesh. You have been set free free so that you can know God and love God and, and work and find meaning in that work because Jesus works with you and, and parent because Jesus walks with you as you parent and, and to make different choices than those that are kind of still living under the authority of the world of flesh and the devil. And yeah, the bad news is, is we slip into that and we go back to our old nature, but the reality is God is so good to us that when he, he, his forgiveness is just always ready. I just handed you an index card, and I realize that we didn't pass out pens, so if you need a pen, we'll hook you up. But uh, what I want you to do is on one side of that card, uh, write, I once was. Just write, I once was. And then on the other side of that card, write, but now am, or but now I am. I just want you to fill in the blank with what makes sense. 
Kyle were writing it, just to be truthful, let's say, I once was ashamed, but now I am accepted. I once was anxious, but now I am bold. Once was skeptical, now I am less skeptical. I just want to take it, tell you to take that home, tape it to your mirror, put it on the visor of your car, stick it in your Bible if that's what you do. It's sometimes hard for us to grasp all of this. It's sometimes hard to have it make sense, which is why Paul prays at the end of chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you may comprehend I think I've really just been praying for us, for you, that your hearts would be enlightened. Because there's things that are true about yourselves that you cannot just see with your eyeballs. You need to be seen with your heart. And that, that's part of why this table is so important, that we, we come to it every week. There's, and I've told the story here before, but I think it continues to bear repeating. There's this really brilliant story where two men are walking on a road to a, story call, to a town called Emmaus. It's, this is in the book of um, Luke. And while they're on that road, a third stranger joins them, and they start talking about these things that have happened in Jerusalem, namely this Jesus guy, and he's dead, and now what happens, and all this kind of stuff. And the text says that as they walked, um, they talked about all of these things, and this man took them through the scriptures and told them all these prophecies about the Christ and all these kinds of things. And they're like, yeah, I know that, and we're reading the Bible, and da 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 And then they get to an inn for the night, and they're going to stay, and they ask him to stay at the, the table with them and to eat and they have no idea who this guy is. It's just some stranger that's been walking with them. And, and then this guy takes some bread and he breaks it. In that moment, it, the text says their eyes were opened and they saw that it was Jesus who had been walking with them. Something about this bread and this cup. Jesus uses them to open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to see him better, to see him more clearly, to kind of come alongside and take the glasses on our hearts and eat, 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 like clean them off, windshield wiper them. And when we come to this table, we eat bread and we drink a cup. But at this table, Christ makes his presence known to us so that we can know that we're loved and cherished. And so in a minute, the team is going to come and sing, lead us in a last song. And uh, when they do, whenever you're ready, just come and take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. I always say this, but the text says this in Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't just, you don't have to think about it. Sarah said it really well at the beginning. It's easy to talk church talk. It's easy to talk good about Jesus. But I mean, it's at this table that we're given a fresh encounter every week to taste and to see that he's good. To taste and see the truth about ourselves. Um, and so let, let's pray together. And as we pray, I just keep thinking about those words. It's a gift, a free gift. And so I just want you to put your hands out like you were about to receive a gift. Both hands out, palms up. And just pray, Jesus, that as we enter into your presence tonight, at this table, we confess that it's very easy for us to climb back under the chair. It's very easy for us to climb back into the coffin. And we've done that in some significant ways this week. But what we pray, Jesus, is that you would continue to help us grasp how we have been liberated and plucked from this and have been given a new identity. And I just pray 
that you would help each of us see that so clearly, maybe for the first time, maybe for the last time, maybe in just a new facet, Jesus, help us to freely receive once again the gift that you've given us, not because we lost it along the way, but just because we need to be reminded that we own and have ownership of the gift because you love us. So use this meal to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Pour out your spirit on these simple gifts that they might become to us the body and blood of Christ. The eating and the drinking of them, we might become the body of Christ redeemed by his blood, united, united as one in ministry to all the world. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The table is open.
Hey, so may you know this week, like tomorrow even, like on Thursday afternoon and Saturday morning, may you know that you are tremendously and like deeply loved and not just like from afar, but that you are united with one who knows you and loves you and is making you anew each day to live fully into this big thing called the good works that he has prepared for us in advance. That's tremendous. We'll see you next week here at Regeneration, 6 o'clock. Bring somebody with you.